Welcome to Al Bernstein Unplugged Unboxing. In a 40-year Hall of Fame career, Al has chronicled some of the greatest moments in boxing history. On this podcast, you get to hear him expand on those memories and talk about the current news in the sport of boxing. You'll also hear Al interview some of the biggest names in the sport. Here's Al Bernstein Unplugged. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the show. Uh, this one's going to be a, a very fun show because we have a terrific guest uh, on this episode, uh, Glenn McCrory, who is um, a former cruiserweight champion, but even more importantly, uh, for 25 years or more, uh, was the principal analyst on the Sky Sports uh, broadcast of boxing in the UK and um, still works in broadcasting over in the UK. He is a fascinating and delightful and engaging guy, and I think you will enjoy uh, the visit with him. I also have a flashback for this episode that is uh, one of the craziest experiences I've ever had. It's connected to boxing, though not exactly. Um, And we're going to answer a number of your questions. So we have all that on the plate today, and I can't wait to dive in. And to do that, um, my pal Trip Mitchell joins me uh, as my co-host. Trip, how are you today? Just great. And the feeling around boxing that I'm getting is we are very close to having some great news. Yeah, I think, yes, that's a good way to put it. Uh, There's no question boxing is going to resume in June and uh, pick up intensity in July. Uh, And, of course, it'll be handled as we saw the UFC being handled with a uh, without an audience. But uh, nonetheless, uh, I think it's going to be a a good experience for the fighters and for boxing fans. And it'll be beginning of getting boxing action going. So I agree. We're uh, we're we're getting dangerously close to uh, to having boxing action. So while you've been off traveling around the country, you picked up something new cameo and you're in danger of becoming the source families are going to you now for the for the answer (laughs) tell me about that yeah you know i've been on cameo now for uh about a month or so and i've had a whole bunch of interesting requests cameo for people that don't know and then go to cameo.com and check it out and just punch my name in if they're interested in uh in getting me to do a some kind of special um video for you what it is it's a customized video where you tell me what you want me to discuss, or maybe sometimes it's a happy birthday wish. Sometimes it's a, somebody that got a new job, or in some cases, like what happened to me this week, somebody wants me to settle a family feud, which thankfully had to do with boxing, not their interpersonal relationships, which would you know be a little more dicey. Um, I got a uh, a cameo uh, from. Uh, somebody who he and his dad have been having this lifelong argument about who would win between Felix Trinidad and Miguel Cotto. And they're both of Puerto Rican descent, the son and dad. And, uh, and they, you know, love Miguel Cotto and Felix Trinidad who are two of the greatest Puerto Rican boxers of all time. And I had to settle the argument or at least give what they considered to be an opinion that they would be interested in. And, um, I did end up picking, uh, by a very narrow margin, I pointed out that it was a, it'd be a tremendous fight if those two could have fought. Uh, but I gave a slight edge to Felix Trinidad because of his height and reach. Um, and I thought that might be the difference, but I thought it would be a, a great, great fight. So hopefully um, I didn't cause any new sparks in the family. Um, but uh, that, that's 
the cameo thing has been so much fun because it gives me a chance to do some personalized message for people and they've been getting a, a kick out of it. So if you're interested, just go to cameo.com and uh, plug in my name and, uh, you know, I'll be happy to, um, to do a uh, personalized message for you. Oh, that's fantastic. And this could be a whole new career. You will go on and you will talk about fights that never happen and pick a winner. This, yes. this is a new show. For only for, for, for specific people. So that's, that's a perfect thing. Yeah, no, it's, it's fun. I, I get a kick out of doing the messages because they're all varied and different. So, so it's a fun thing. And we've got a little bit of uh, not boxing news, but uh, at least some boxers talking about making news, don't we? Yeah, Chris Eubank Jr. is talking about fighting Charlo, and you have some very specific thoughts about that. Yeah, Chris Eubank Jr. Uh, wants to fight Jamal Charlo, who is uh, one of the middleweight champions. And that fight has been kind of germinating because uh, when Chris Eubank Jr. fought Matt Karbov uh, some months ago, in a it was a truncated fight because Korobov uh, hurt his shoulder and Eubank won a uh, won on you know uh, TKO stoppage because he couldn't he couldn't continue um, a referee stops contest. But um, Matt Korobov had previous to that fought Jamal Charlo and fought him very well. It was a decision win for for Charlo, but a very very close fight. And Karbov, who's a good fighter, was the underdog against Charlo. And in the first round against Chris Eubank Jr., to be honest, Karbov was getting the better of Eubank Jr. And everyone expected that to be a terrific fight. Didn't turn out that way. But Chris Eubank Jr., who amazingly is now 30 years old, hard for me to imagine that because it seems like, you know, I mean, I started doing his fights in the UK when I was doing fights for Channel 5 over there. And, uh... Uh, some years ago, and you know, now all of a sudden uh, we turn around and he's thirty years old, which isn't old, but it's it's the time when you want to be. He wants to be getting yet another chance at a at a world title, and he wants to fight Jamal Charlo. I think that's a fight that could happen, whether it happens in this calendar year when we may or may not have fans in the stands to add to the commerce of a fight. That remains to be seen, but I think it is likely a fight that would happen and, and would be a very interesting uh, and exciting matchup. So um, it, 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 it could be pretty intriguing. So we'll see if that one, uh, if that one takes place. Well, on this show, we do um, flashbacks. That is a feature that, uh, in which I get to look back at things that have happened in the world of boxing. And so here is tonight's or this episode's flashback this isn't exactly a boxing flashback though it has to do with a major boxing match back in 1987 when uh sugar ray leonard fought marvin hagler uh i was there that weekend for a couple of reasons we were doing our um taping uh or doing our top rank boxing show the night before that uh that fight uh, and, um, and it was, uh, we were doing it out in the outdoor arena where the Hagler Hearns or Hagler uh, Leonard fight was going to be. I, uh, also had something else I was doing that weekend. I was doing my music show, which I often did before those big fights in the eighties. So for a three night engagement, two nights leading up to, and the night of the fight, I was doing, uh, 
my uh, my music show at the Caesars Palace in the Olympic Lounge. And as was always the case when I did those, we attracted a very eclectic group of people. And on this particular occasion, I remember this was opening night of it, and uh, and uh, we, you know, Michael Landon was there, Victor French. They were from the show Highway to Heaven. I think they were doing at that time. John Madden, Tommy Hearns. Uh, we had you know a whole array of of uh, show business and sports entertainment uh, people on, uh, on hand, and. Oh, that was also the night when Neil Diamond came in and gave me a little advice on a song afterwards, which is another story uh, for another day. But here we are doing this. And so I start my show and I'm about three songs in. Things are going along very well. And I'm walking off to to the left part of the stage and sitting uh, my stage left, right near the, the stage, is Butch Lewis. The, the former boxing promoter, and Marion Barry, the mayor of Washington, D.C. Oops. And, yeah, and I'm, I'm looking down, and all of a sudden, I look down, and on the table uh, are two gigantic lines of cocaine. And <laughs> Marion Barry took one, and... Uh, uh, and Butch Lewis took the other. And they both looked up at me and kind of smiled. <laughs> and I was desperately trying to just remember the words to the song. I was like, you're kidding me, right? Now, this is in, right in the, in, the, in, the, uh, in the lounge. And the interesting thing is the 1980s were a freewheeling time, needless to say. But even, <laughs> even for the 1980s, this was pushing the envelope. So during the course of it, at various times, I looked down and there they were having fun. And of course, everybody was buzzing around them. It was almost becoming a, you know, kind of a, a sideshow. Until finally, you know, I saw these people huddling over the side. Somebody from Caesars kind of came over and they were, you know, this will show you. Instead of like running in and arresting them, they came in and just kind of said, you know, could you calm this down a little bit? Might not be a good idea. And, and uh, finally... They did, in fact, you know, stop uh, the uh, extracurricular activity. And I went on with the show. And years later, I was thinking to myself, when I was getting ready to write my book, I was thinking to myself, I wanted to put that story in. And I thought to myself, did I imagine it or have I embellished it over life? And uh, there were a couple people that, uh, I, when I mentioned I was doing the book to, and every person of these three or four people that I mentioned I was doing the book, one of the first things they said was, you're going to put in the Marion Barry uh, uh, Bush Lewis story, right? <laughs> so that told me that, yes, it did indeed happen. So somehow I managed to remember the lyrics. They didn't get arrested, and we went on with the show. But it was, for about 15 or 20 minutes, it was a fascinating scene at the Olympic Lounge in uh, Caesar's Palace. Well, back what was great on a big fight weekend if there was a big saturday night fight you guys would come in on a friday night it vegas was so much fun and then in working with you previously the weigh-ins are almost a story to themselves on the friday so when boxing gets going again fans coming in even if you don't have a ticket to the main fight there's tons of great stuff to do in vegas yeah there really is and it is and uh and I want to give people advice. If you come and see me perform, 
maybe at the Tuscany Hotel or some of the places where I do shows prior to a fight, please don't do what Butch Lewis and uh, Marion Barry did. It would be, might get you in trouble and it will distract me. And now in my current uh, state, I would forget the lyrics to the song. Um, so uh, we have a, I mentioned we have a very eclectic and wonderful guest for this show. Uh, he is a former cruiserweight champion. He is a, uh, he was a commentator on Sky Sports and continues to do commentating for various UK uh, outlets. Uh, he is one of the most interesting people in boxing, I think. And I've uh, been anxious to have a chance to chat with him. And we did, in fact. Here is our, my conversation with Glenn McCrory. Glenn, I appreciate you visiting uh, with the show. I've been wanting to do this for a while. And I'm glad that we could, uh, that we could work it out. I'm very, very happy, Al. It's great to see you. It's, um, you know, it's a real honor, to be honest. Well, I'm happy to have you. You are. Uh, we're going to get to your broadcasting in a little while. Um, you and uh, uh, Ian and all the great broadcasting you've done over the years and continue to do in uh, Great Britain and in the UK. Uh, but I, I wanted to ask you about, you know, in our current situation now, we're just on the the cusp of boxing coming back um, in in a, in a different form, but nevertheless coming back for fans so they can watch it at least on television. How anxious are the fans in the UK, and what do you think their expectations are of the the sport when it comes back? You know, I, I think obviously it's it's terrible problem that the world is facing at the moment and it's, it's very very sad um, but the world must go on and you know one of the things that you know at the moment everybody's starting it's been a long time we've been in lockdown and people are starting to you know the great thing that we've got in this life is sport boxing yeah. uh, is very very popular and people people love love sport as an entertainment so I think it's getting to the time where people need some positivity in their lives. You know, everybody has done, you know, the vast majority have done exactly sure. what we asked of them. And, you know, we're getting a hold, we're getting a hold of it and we're getting it sorted. But there's a big problem that we, we do need to get back to some form of normality as quickly as possible. Or there's going to be a massive, a massive problem with, with people's mental health because we just can't keep like this forever and one of the things as i said that makes that is our enjoyment is is you know i mean it's it, from the likes of myself and, and yourself it, it's our lives it's yeah all we've done for for, for so many years <laughs> so it's it's so hard it's so very very hard to be away from it yeah that's for sure and there are a number of fights starting to to um kind of be talked about on specific dates, both on on both sides of the pond, uh, and so there's every expectation that we're going to see uh, boxing pretty soon. Over there, there's been talk. I know Eddie Hearn has talked about getting fights at a specific location where he wants to put it. Uh, where do you think most of the fights are going to end up when they come back? Well, I mean, I'd like to see them get you know get some some sort of crowd there because obviously for a fighter's perspective boxing without any crowd is is very very hard you know you remember when you were you were lower on the bill and the crowd haven't come in yet and that is that is so hard yeah. 
and and then I when I won my world title and it seemed like the whole town had come to the fight, they won the fight for me. Yeah. You know, people cheering you on and, and so the crowd has such a, a massive effect on a fight. You know, some people feed off them. Some people, it, it destroys, you know, the nerves get to them. So it's very much a part of that. But I think it's, everything's going to have to be taken step by step. Yeah. And the first thing's going to, you know, we're going to have to do some fights behind closed doors. Obviously, you know, good fighters can fight anywhere. So we will see that. But I think these fights will happen. I think they're looking at sort of July um, to get, to start getting fights yeah. underway. Yeah, that's what I think. And there'll be some fights that are talked about in June, but July's probably when the sport will really, uh, really get going. One of the, the things that gets talked about uh, over over in this area a lot, and 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 it obviously is of interest where you are. Is was this whole question of whether there was some way for Tyson Fury to um, short circuit the idea of a rematch with Deontay Wilder, which Wilder had contractually uh, available to him, and move right to a fight with Anthony Joshua? If you had to gauge where UK fans are on that whole question, would they like to see that happen? Would it be just, I mean, I'm assuming they probably would, but would it be something they'd like to, to, to just, you know, move right to that match? Absolutely. And you know what? If there was one fight that could just put so much back into the, the British sporting publics, give such, such a boost, yeah. To a nation that you know, like the world, we're on our knees at the moment. I think that fight would just be a fight. You know, two British fighters fighting for the undisputed heavyweight championship of the world would just what a way, what a what a way. Yeah, that's that's pretty extraordinary. Um, and and of course, it it doesn't look like it may or may not happen because both Pulev in his fight with Joshua and Wilder have. Uh, have kind of claims on the next fight, and we'll see how it how it flies. Are you uh, when you look at a possible Fury Wilder uh, third fight? What's your general take on that fight? I could never ever discount Wilder. Deontay Wilder is is you know the most dangerous fighter out there, and his performance. You know Tyson Fury had his number last time. Mm-hmm. You know, he just knew exactly what to do. He pushed him back. He pushed him off balance. A fight, a puncher, you know, the most important thing with a fighter is balance. And the most, that's even more important for a puncher. He's got to be, he's got to be set. His feet have got to be set. If he's yeah. been pushed off balance all the time, or if he's coming forward and the fighter is moving all the time, like when I sparred Tyson, I just, I just moved all the time. So he couldn't set himself. And that's exactly what, what Fury did. He just kept pushing him back, didn't let him set himself. So he took the play away from it. It was, it was a brilliant game plan. But, you know, I, I still wouldn't rule Deontay Wilder out of anything because when you have got that absolute fight-ending power, you're a danger man. And I admire, you know, the word over here, what Tyson Fury is saying is, you know, I don't want to pay Deontay Wilder step, step aside money. I want to fight him again. Yeah, interesting. Again. So that is Tyson. He's very, very confident. I think mentally he has got his number a little bit. And you know, Tyson is, is you know, he's he, obviously he's a, he's a he's a a big 
um, push you know, he pushes mental health an awful lot because he's, he's suffered an awful lot but he's also very strong-minded as well you know so he's, he's, he can be weak-minded he can be very strong-minded and I think you know he's definitely got Deontay Wilder's number but you know it's great that he wants to fight anybody he's he's you know whoever comes in front of him he wants to fight and you've got a for a heavyweight champion of the world that's what you admire yeah that's for sure there's no question about that a couple of other fighters in uh, the U- UK who uh, are when life returns in boxing are are unsure of their status of where they're going to be fighting and who they'll be fighting uh, are in the 168 pound division where it's a really interesting division and two of the champions in fact are from the UK Billy Joe Saunders and Callum Smith they're they've both been dancing around with Canelo at various points what where do you think they'll land in terms of how they proceed in the next six or seven months uh, as the sport gets back? Well, you know, two terrific fighters, two undefeated fighters, very, very different, um, but very exciting in, in their different ways. Callum Smith, I think, has got a, an excellent future. He's young and, you know, the, the fights, Canelo would be a great, great fight for him because of his size. Yeah, you know, Canelo right. is not the biggest super middleweight right. and, you know, Callum Smith, I'm sure he could be a strong, light heavyweight. Sure. So I think Callum Smith, that's a good, good fight. Canelo is a good, good fight for, for Callum Smith because I think, I don't know if they've, if they've, I'm sure they have stood next to him, but he is a big guy with a big punch. And when he's in with it, when he, I've noticed when he, the more challenging an opponent, the better Callum Smith is. Billy Joe Saunders is a, is a, a superb talent. And if he's in, if he's in the right mood, Billy Joe yeah. Saunders, anybody it's all about if he fancies it you know if he wants it if he puts the work in again if he's got the challenge you know he pulls out he's, he's a superstar yeah it's, it probably the only thing that's prevented him to this point is just uh, i think he hasn't been as consistent probably in his approach to the sport as they would have liked i would think and and maybe that's a little bit of what's held him back a bit even though he's he's had a Excellent career, to be sure. Um, you are, you know, I alluded earlier to your uh, your broadcasting skills and the fact that you uh, have, you know, are an icon of among broadcasters in the UK. And you, for many, many years, worked with a gentleman who I have huge admiration for, as I do for you, Ian Dark. Why did your, you know, you went almost right from being a, a, a boxer, world cruiserweight world champion, uh, into the broadcast booth. Why did your collaboration with Ian Dark, do you think, work so well for so many years? And 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 listeners loved hearing you guys. You know, it was um, it was a wonderful thing because when I won the world title, for me, yeah, that was it for me. I was just 24 years of old age, but I've been told my whole career I'd never win a world title because nobody from my area had ever won a world sure. title. Um, so, so it was, that was it, that was it for me. I, you know, I'd done what you know, I'd achieved, I'd, I'd achieved my goal. Um, and then the commentary for BBC radio that night when I won the world title in Stanley was Ian Dock. Um, and it was a wonderful commentary. If you ever get the chance, I mean, you know, Ian's voice is just yeah, amazing, fantastic commentator. And he did the fight and it was brilliant. He interviewed me just before the fight. We talked and we had, a fantastic interview you know when you just you just 
gel with somebody. Yeah. Um, I love, I, you see by my shirt, I love the history of boxing. And, you know, right from a kid, I love, you know, the, the Harry, I wrote, my first book I ever read was Given to the Angels, Harry Graham. And, you know, so I love, I love reading about fighters. And I think Ian, when he interviewed me, he saw my, my, my love of boxing, my love of the history of boxing, and my passion for boxing. And I think that, that came through. Um, and then a new TV channel came up called Sky TV. And they, they after that fight, for their first uh, ever broadcast, which was going to be a Lennox Lewis fight, they wanted, they, they got, um, they headhunted Ian Dark. And they asked Ian Dark, who would you want as a, as a co-commentator? And he said, well, as a young man, just what a world oh, title. That's in great. The of England. And uh, he's got, you know, he's passionate. He's pa very, very passionate about it. I don't know if I quite spoke the English language at that time because Jordy's <laughs> got his own little dialect. But um, <laughs> thankfully, I, I learned the language and I learned boxing with, through Ian Dog. And he just, he, he'd done it with journalism and then, the radio, so he he learned his stripes and he yeah. learned he learned it the the right way. So it was it was to be honest, it was an absolute pleasure coming up, learning. You know, you just learning off off the best, and you had him to to look up to and to show you the ropes, and he just give you little touches of of what you you know what you should say and don't say too much, and let the pitchers talk, and just little things that that helped me so much. So it was and. Other than that, what an era, what an era oh. to come through in, in boxing with the, the heavyweights of, you know, I've been around Tyson his whole career. I was a sparring partner for him, you know, in his early, in his, you know, Larry Holmes and um, Terrell Biggs, I was I a was sparring partner for him with. So to come through the Tyson era, the Lennox Lewis, the, you know, the end of Chavez and Oscar De La Hoya and so many, so many, many greats and right up. Right up to today with Tyson Fury and, you know, just out there with Tyson Fury covering that fight with John T. Wilder. It's been, it's been a wonderful run of 31 years and counting. Yeah, you've, you've been a voice that uh, boxing fans in the UK have come to count on and, and, and enjoyed so much. Uh, you know, I, when I, I was lucky to be able to go over and do um, boxing on Channel 5, uh, and uh, I think I was the first American to actually work for a, a British uh, broadcasting company, uh, which was, you know, delightful to me because I love being there and I love I, I, I love everything about the boxing scene there. And I fans are very accepting of me, even as a interloper from somewhere else. Um, and I, I thought about the fact that I think part of that is because my style of broadcasting is a little bit similar to what you guys do in that, and correct me if I'm wrong, British fans want you to talk about the fight that's in front of you. They do not want you to sit there and have a debate about where that guy is in the top 10, uh, how somebody else that might fight him. They, I don't think they want that kind of debate during a fight. And no. so I feel like that was kind of the why I was able to translate. Is that a fair statement? Very much so. I think, you know, the, the, the public just want, you know, they want you to, they don't want to go, you to go on under other things. And, you know, during the fight, they want, you know, you tell them what's going on. You yeah. tell them, explain it and, you know, put your knowledge into it, you know, give your knowledge to them of, of, of what's happening, where they, 
where they might be in the next fight. But don't go, you know, don't go too far. But I think that that's right. And I'm, I'm, keep it simple. Keep it simple is, is, is yeah. And pay attention to what you're watching. We could, we could, all, you know, I, I told a lot of my American colleagues, I, I said the experience of broadcasting over there and doing it for what was interesting to me because there's a certain spontaneity to the broadcast, even though you're, you know, they don't want you to, to, you know, it, it's better not, it was better way to do boxing anyway, not to stray into while you're actually announcing the fight to stray into other territories, but within the whole broadcast, things are more spontaneous and fun. Like after nobody gets crazy about whether the shot that you have is perfect. It's more about just getting the content and talking to somebody. And if you got to, if you got to lean against the ring to do it, that's what you do. I think it's important to be natural. If something happens, yeah. if something happens a little bit out of context, you know, it's not a case of like cut and polish. It's that's life. And it, right. what happens, you know, so, if if somebody you know if somebody's mom gets in the ring that has <laughs> hits the opponent with a high heel shoe, you know, which I think Al, I think the the you know you earn you earn your sort of credentials in when when the fights are sometimes when they're very hard or when there's tragedy. Right, that's right. When there's something bad, when something goes wrong. If there's a good fight and it's 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 very easy. If there's a poor fight and you've got to entertain, that's where you know you that's, that's where you become a good commentator. When you can keep people entertained when the fight's awful, or when this you know, unfortunately some some tragedy happens and, and yeah. you've got you've got to you've got to keep talking. There's times when we've we've been working, mainly has been commentating, there's been uh, you know somebody's been knocked out and the, the paramedics are getting in and it's looking very bad and we haven't heard our producer who's just Everything's every, and you've just gotta, you've just right. gotta go with your instincts, and that's where you find the right words. You, you earn your money, and and also, you know, I mean, you were, you, I'm sure you were there as well. Fights like um, Galotta and Riddick Bow in in New York when there's a riot. You know, I remember Ian Dark sitting under the table, and I'm I'm standing up, and the whole place is kicked off, and I'm standing up. Like, <laughs> It's crazy. Oh, that's funny. That was a that was a crazy night to be sure. Well, you you uh you and I have something else in common in that we both have straight into the world of entertainment. I do a lot of musical performing and singing, and you over the years, and you have done acting. You have uh, been in shows, uh, TV shows, and movies. You even, which I was extraordinarily extraordinarily impressed with did live theater in England, which is uh, the highest honor of all because theater in England is so absolutely spectacular. Uh, and I saw a quote where you said you you would have thought about even making that your major uh, uh, career after, uh, after boxing, but you felt that broadcasting gave you a little safer haven uh, because it's tough to be, a, to be an actor looking for jobs. It was. You know, my, my boxing career was, was a tough boxing career. And then, and then when, you're, when you've, you've got the chance, we just started to do Sky, and I'd, I'd acted since I, was, since I was quite young, getting little bits of parts in theatre and, and television. And things started to kick off. Things started to get good with, it, with the boxing on Sky. But things also started to happen. You know, I, I got <laughs> I auditioned for James Bond. Um, 
I was in the last few for Piers Brosnan beat me to it, um, which I think was a good pick by, by <laughs> Broccoli family. But, um, you know, things were starting to, to move a little bit there. But a point came where you had to say, what do you know best? You know, what, what, is, what is the best to give you livelihood? And, and I picked, I picked um, boxing, and uh, rightly so. But, you know, I've had some nice, you know, I still now and again dip back into it. A couple of years ago, I, I played the lead in the West End. Yes, I saw that. That was very impressive. How was that experience? I was terrified. <laughs> yeah, I'll bet. Yes. It was, it was just three people. There was just me and two girls in the whole show. And I was on stage for all but one scene. And, it, and I had to, when, when I first went on, I, I lay on the floor. It was, you know, you know the birds um, scene. Um, Daphne du Maurier, it was her, her, her script that we were doing. And I get on the floor and I wake up in the crowd, the whole crowd right in front of me. And it was, till that point, I didn't know if I knew the script. <laughs> and it, yeah. it, it was very like, you know, I was shattered. The girls, the two girls that were with me, I was, I was, I was doing all this before, before curtain, before curtain went. And they were like, what are you doing? I was, it's the only way I know to warm up. <laughs> the only way I know. That's funny. You know, it's when you've got that much nerves, you know, we work really hard. But you do it. You know, you you do it, and it's it's amazing. You know, if you set your mind to do something, I've got no, no real education. I never finished this. I would think that was a a bucket list item for you to do a live theater performance like that, especially in the West End, where theater is uh, is so well, revered. It's, it, it's I've done a few things in my life where you just think you are gonna just die yeah. in front of everybody or you're gonna you're gonna take off and you know sparring with Tyson everybody said I was just you know I just won the Commonwealth title I was cruiserweight and everybody said you're completely nuts um James Tillis who I uh, I work with I'm trained with, close, yeah. and he said you've got to come over Glenn you you'll be okay your movement you'll be able to do it and it was it was brilliant you know it was very very tough it was you know my you know you were days and and he, you know, he said he took no prisoners in sparring. No, that was very, very tough. And doing the doing the theatre, that was something. Right until right until the curtain went up, I did not know if I had remembered it because of, you know an hour and a half of non-stop. You know, it was it was. And then just recently, last October, I climbed the eighth highest mountain in the world. I saw that. That was pretty extraordinary. You are um, you're an eclectic man, a Renaissance man, Glenn. I was just playing stupid, Al. It was just, it was just, that was, that was, um, that was the hardest thing. I can't, I can't even imagine. What, what motivated you? You just felt like you needed to, to conquer that? I think it was Jameson's whiskey, to be honest, Al. I think that might have had something to do with my decision. But um, it was, no, I, no, it was just something that I thought I was supposed to be doing um, Everest. You know, as we speak, I should have been just completely nervous. And we're doing it for charity. I got asked to, I got asked to climb a couple of years ago, climb Kilimanjaro with a young man in the wheelchair. That was that was so, so difficult, but so so wonderful. I mean, it was just you know, we he got up, he was he was super, super strong and oh, he was brilliant. He just never gave in and, and he got to the top in a wheelchair. Wow. And then I got asked to to do Everest and I thought, why not? You know, um it's, it's, it's a massive, massive challenge. Um, but I didn't realize what was in, what was involved and, and I had to train and climbs and the train and climb was 
eighth highest mountain in the world, that was Manaslu. And that was just, I watched, I, I literally, I watched a woman camp for, a woman start to make, next, just next to me, four foot away, she started sounding a bit uncomfortable. She had her oxygen on, and our, our, our Sherpa was trying to sort of help, and I started, I started to film it. You know, I thought she, I thought it was a joke. She collapsed and died right in front of me. It, it was, it was, and watching people fall in crevasses and, mm. It is just another world. It is just the hardest thing on earth. You, you lose a glove up there and you're, you're, you're dead. You're, so you're, you've lost a hand in, in 20 seconds. It is those, those people. Wow. Are on, well, you came, you came through it, which we're very grateful for. I, I am. And, and you know, the, the, we'll not be doing Everest because they, they hike the money up and the charity can't afford it and, and, and that wow. sort of stuff. But, you know, we raised a lot of money for that, and so it was, it was, it was really good. And I saw, I tested myself again. I tested myself to the very limit, but I think I've, I've just about got to give up testing myself. <laughs> Maybe those kind of tests. Although I could see you in another live play, that would be that would be a good idea. Hey, Glenn, I I so much appreciate you visiting with us. Um, hopefully, we can do it again sometime. I hope so, Al. I've just got to. I was looking. I was, obviously I've. I've known you for many many years but i just had to you know when you look up and you just want to see you know your work and what you've done obviously i know your books and and you've been you know obviously rocky and all the other you know, stuff the films that you've been in and you're you know you're the face of boxing you know and that's why obviously thank you loves you in the uk but i when i looked i just you shared the same birthday as my dad and his brother the i didn't know that oh wow and it was just, well, you know what? I know to the, I know it's gonna go okay. That is pretty amazing. Now there's a there's an amazing coincidence. Well, that's that's great. Now there you are. We we're bonded, obviously. Definitely, definitely. Hey, Glenn, that, that's so nice to talk to you, and uh, I appreciate you uh, taking the time to do it. And I know everybody's gonna get a kick out of hearing uh, hearing just some of the the great stories that you have from a life well lived. That's for sure. Thank you so much. Thanks very much, Glenn. Bless you. Thanks, Al. So that was Glenn McCrory, uh, who, I, as I promised you, was is a true Renaissance man. Not too many people have performed live at the West End and climbed a mountain. So now, Trip, you are a, you're you're an adventurer. You do a lot of stuff. You ski. You play hockey. You you know you're you have many many endeavors. So I, I would have to think that you kind of appreciated his uh, his spirit of adventure. You know, you can tell how nice people are prior to the interview getting yeah. started. He and Lee were having a fascinating conversation and just really enjoying each other's company. And that, God, it just makes you feel really warm and fuzzy about a guy. That's true. It's, it's how people are when they're just interacting uh, that, that kind of gives you a feeling of who they are as a person. Yeah, and you've met probably a lot of people when the camera lights go on, they're the greatest people in the world. When the lights go off, they're not. <laughs> There have been those moments, yes. I won't. I, I, since, I, since I already outed Mary and Barry and uh, Butch Lewis, who are not with us any longer, I won't out anyone else uh, on this on this <laughs> okay. podcast. I've got some questions for you. Excellent. Let's do some. Okay, Mr. Moonshine uh, said, "I've got you with one. What fight will be bigger and more challenging two or three years down the road, assuming these fighters keep on winning? Devin Haney versus Ryan Garcia." Lopez versus Davis, Virgil Ortiz versus Enos, Chris Colbert versus Stevenson. Well, that's an interesting uh, that's an interesting question. It really is. So 
all those fights are are interesting. Uh, the Virgil Ortiz against uh, Ennis, Darren Ennis, is really an intriguing one because both those men have tremendous talent and they're in a welterweight division. And in a couple of years, they could be the future of that welterweight division. Uh, and certainly Haney and Garcia would be spectacular. We've talked about the lightweights a lot on this on this um, this show. But, you know, if, from picking from that group, and the, the Colbert, Shakur, Stevenson matchup's excellent as well. But if I had to pick one, it might be Teofimo Lopez against Gervonta Davis. For this reason, that question presupposes that Lopez would have beaten Lomachenko, who he is likely to fight, he will fight next, because they've said that they don't want a tune-up fight. So let's say that he, that suggests that he beats Lomachenko. That means... Lopez would have stamped himself as certainly have argument to being the best lightweight. If Gervonta Davis is still winning two years from now, and maybe he would have fought somebody like Haney or Garcia if he was still winning, um, I think that fight, because of a lot of the elements it would have going on, would might end up being the biggest of that bunch. But every one of them is good. Me too. This question comes from Phil Thompson, and he said, do you really think that Mike Tyson will fight again? And Phil said, I hope not. I don't want to see him on his back bleeding through the nose and mouth. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That would be unique. Yeah, this has been a, a, a crazy and uh, kind of odd odyssey, I think. You know, since the video got released and, uh, and it's taken on a life of its own with people, you know, just uh, – going kind of crazy with their reaction to this. And many people uh, thinking that this is a sign that Mike Tyson can fight the way he did when he was in his prime. A reminder is that when he last fought, and I did those last two fights he did against uh, Kevin McBride and Danny Williams, he lost those fights and didn't look very good in the process. Now Evander Holyfield's jumped into the, the mix and is suggesting a charity match between the two of them. And Tyson has said, yeah, that's a great idea. Uh, and now they're pinning a lot of it on the charity angle. However, I have to believe that some of the reason why they will do this is to be remunerated. And if they are remunerated, and if it doesn't feel like an exhibition, that's when you get, in, in my opinion, you get into dicey territory with guys in their 50s who are very competitive um, going after each other. So I'm going to say the chances are 50-50 that Mike Tyson does end up in a boxing ring for some kind of charity uh, fight. Uh, and I wouldn't have thought that even when that video first came out. But now it's taken on such a life of its own. I think it's almost inevitable. And, you know, we're living in strange times uh, on every level. So I, I think this could be a part of that. You and I did an Evander Holyfield fight from the Thomas and Mack yes. against the great South African, great, uh, good South African. And the thing about Evander, even though he was in his 40s, he stays in pretty good shape. He does. Well, yeah, now he's in his 50s. But yeah, he, he's, uh, he is a, uh, uh, he does. He stays in excellent condition. And, you know, in some ways, <laughs> that's part of what makes this situation even more dicey, because both these men are are now that Tyson is really fit, uh, they're probably fit enough to feel that they can do this. Oh, it should be very interesting. And then another question, talking about kind of fighters who are up there in age a little bit, do they, during this 
time out, do they get replenished or do older fighters just get older? Yeah, that was an interesting question, I thought, uh, sent to us on Twitter. And I think it came from Percy Crawford, who's a very fine writer, uh, boxing writer. Uh, and that is a very good question because these fighters now, their, bio- their boxing biological clock is ticking uh, for many of the fighters in their 30s, uh, up to their mid-30s and maybe beyond. And, you know, we're used to people not fighting much more than twice a year these days. Some try to fight three times a year, but doesn't always come to fruition. So this extended weight is similar to the layoff some of them might have had in any case. But it, but if you've had a layoff already before this, this is extended at past where you would want it to be. And I don't, so I'm less on the side of it replenishing uh, older fighters, more on the side of it just making life more difficult for them, at, you know, pushing them further to an age where they don't want to be uh, with a layoff they don't necessarily want to have. Uh, and so I, I think this works a little more to the detriment of the, the fighters that are older and, uh, uh, and fighting father time. For some of the fighters that maybe had nagging injuries, et cetera, of course, could be helpful to them to have a layoff. So, Al, traditionally, the heavyweights, the heavier fighters have been able to fight into their 30s and sometimes early 40s. There have been exceptions. Hopkins fought into his late 40s and had success. Is it still the way? Is it the heavier fighters that can probably go on a little? You know, that was always the bromide trip. You're right. But in recent years, the, uh, the lighter weight divisions, we've seen fighters go way into their late 30s. I mean, Guillermo Rigondeau is a perfect example. Now he's almost 40 years old and still very effective. Uh, and there are a number of fighters like that. So uh, anybody under, especially anyone underneath the, you know, 160 pounds, they used to say, especially lower weight divisions under 135, uh, they thought they their shelf life was much um, less. But now not so much. That's interesting. And better training, nutrition. and Yeah, yeah that's played. Maybe, an, there's no question that's played a role. Staying away from Mayor Barry. Yeah, good, always a good idea. <laughs> Got a question. Uh, hey, Al, were you ever in negotiations to work for HBO? Yeah, that was an interesting one. Uh, that came across on Twitter, and I thought, do I really want to deal with it? But you know what? I'm trying to answer everything people send us. Uh, so, uh, you know, I wouldn't call it negotiations. Uh, but over the years, I'd call it flirting. <laughs> there were there were times uh, going dating pretty far back where um, there was a lot of flirting going on, and uh, uh, it never uh, came to fruition. Of course, I ended up at, at Showtime and uh, um, and ended up having what turned out for me and has been for me the the best collaboration of my broadcast career. Uh, and uh, so I'm very happy the way it worked out. But uh, there have been there were a few flirting moments. You know, we didn't. We didn't I'm not going to say there were contract negotiations, but uh, we uh, we cast a uh, a longing eye at each other on a couple of occasions. And the fact that Showtime now is the big player in the sport, you have to on one hand say, "Hey, we won." Well, you know, and and listen, there there are a lot of other platforms that are doing well. Uh, you know, in boxing, uh, and I think. You know, HBO's leaving boxing certainly was a, a significant uh, moment uh, for that network and for for uh, for boxing. So 
I, I was very, I was happy in general with my decision making process, uh, and so I'm happy with it now for sure. <laughs> okay, and uh, Jim Benham wrote. Should there be a super heavyweight division? Foreman in his first go around is 220. Ali weighed less. Should modern fighters with similar skills be expected to give up 45 pounds to a bigger fighter with more reach and height? So on a practical basis, the answer to that question is yes, there should be another. You could make a strong case for there being another weight division. When the cruiserweight division was added, it felt like that was going to um, be the buffer between, because it went from 175 to infinity before, right? Um, then the cruiserweight division, which had various weights and settled on 200 being the weight limit, uh, that one was supposed to solve the problem. But then heavyweights kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and hence the question that was asked. Now, I say from a practical standpoint, it's a good idea. It probably is, but from a Purely marketing standpoint for the sport, it's not a good idea because the only thing boxing needs less than more weight divisions is more sanctioning bodies. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, so I, I, while I feel for the fighters that get caught in between, uh, I feel that... Um, it would not be a good idea for boxing to create another weight division. And let's remember, there have been fighters. We, you know, we now in the the heavyweights that are at the top of the the list. Uh, you know, Fury, Joshua, and Wilder are perfect examples. But even Wilder, you know, he doesn't come in at two fifty or two forty even often. He's below that. So we have a heavyweight right now. That is not any, he's been as low as 218, 219 for fights. Uh, so uh, it's not impossible for men at that weight to compete. So my, uh, my thing is, I, I think at the end of the day, probably not for the, for the weight division. I'm going to vote no on that one. So, and yeah. I, I want to mention to people that uh, these questions that we're answering come on Twitter. Uh, you can see uh, my Twitter account at Al Bernstein and, uh, you can uh, uh, send questions in to me, uh, and we try to answer as many of them as we can. Great. And getting back to the heavyweights for a second is when the heavyweights are doing well, it's great for the whole sport of boxing. It is. You know, I, sometimes people turn it into a cliche that they have to be great or the sport's not going to function. That I don't buy. But there's no question when the heavyweight division is good, it, uh, it does fuel the sport, especially in America. We like big things here, you know. Uh, and we do, you know, it's just the way it is. And, uh, and, and so it helps in the, in this country for sure. So, uh, so keep the questions coming and we can be answering them. Uh, next, our next episode is going to feature an interview with Tim Bradley, the fine, uh, champion boxer who is now a, uh, a boxing commentator on ESPN and he's going to be a lot of fun trips. So we're looking forward to that episode. Really looking forward to it. And we're about to get back. Yeah, indeed. Boxing coming back. Uh, so anyway, thank you all for joining us, and we will see you next time on Al Bernstein Unplugged.